Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio on the occasion of the start of yet another month as we edge ever closer to the end of the world. Climate change has now got Prince Harry so worried that he stopped wearing shoes. In addition to pledging to only have one more child with Meghan Markle, the man who is fourth in line to the throne of this country jetted off to Sicily to join dozens of millionaires who arrived in private planes at a Google conference set up with the specific purpose of saving the planet. Isn't that sweet? Expect more virtue signalling later from the likes of Katy Perry, Naomi Campbell or Lance Fernando Bloom and Leonardo DiCaprio, that's right, they're all there. Personally, I can't wait to hear their advice on how we should change our behaviour and save the world. Give me strength. Later on in the show, meteorologist Piers Corbyn joins us in the studio and we'll be taking your calls on the climate change con, so you don't want to miss that. 0344 499 Coming up first, though, we're going to investigate the explosion in begging that seems to be going on in the UK at the moment. And it's not just a problem. In London, a homeless charity in Nottingham has warned that hundreds of professional beggars are raking in thousands of pounds a week thanks to generous citizens who often can't tell the difference between them and the genuinely homeless population. Surely something needs to be done. We'll be talking to Daryl Morris, columnist and talk radio presenter up in Manchester. 0344 499 1000. That's not all, of course. We'll be hearing about the electrician who wired his van up to give thieves an electric shock because he was so fed up of being robbed. And we're going all European with some Slovenian fizz tasting as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So, wherever you live in this country, I'm sure you will have a view on the next story that we're going to discuss. Because if you walk around any of the major cities of this country, whether it's London, whether it's Manchester, whether it's Birmingham, whether it's Leeds, Sheffield, Glasgow, Edinburgh, you will see more homeless people, I think, than you've ever seen before. There seems to have been some kind of explosion uh, of homeless people. Some of it due to the fact that many, many more people are actually homeless, but a lot of it due to the fact that there are now gangs of professional beggars who are going out, taking money off very good-mannered and well-thinking well sort of members of the population who want to give money to people who they think are down and out, people who they think need a little bit of help. However, the problem is, and a Nottingham charity has warned, there are lots of these professional beggars out there who are making absolute fortune and actually are making things worse for the genuinely homeless people who are not being uh, given anything at all because a lot of a lot of other people in this country, and I have to say I'm one of them, are not giving money to anyone anymore because there are just so many people out there and you can't tell whether they are professionals or not. Let's talk to Daryl Morris, who's a columnist and talk radio presenter. He lives up in Manchester. We'll find out what it's like up there. Daryl, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, I've, I've, I've not been to Manchester that recently, so I can't tell whether it's changed. But has it changed up there? Are you seeing a lot more homeless people than there used to be? Yeah, without question, without question. Um, the streets of Manchester are left with, uh, with bundles of the meshes of sleeping bag and clubs and people who are trying to stay warm and people who are trying to stay dry or cool, uh, trying to survive, frankly. Um, and, and in amongst those people, there, there are those that are, are looking for money as well, and some of them looking for money uh, to get themselves through the day, some of them looking for money to, to eat, um, and some of them, as you say, looking for money to feed back into these, these organised gangs. And I think that I would caveat this conversation, Mike, with um, the fact that few problems that our society face 
are simple. You know that. You mm. spend three hours a day chewing the fat over them and, uh, and drilling into the detail of them. You know full well that there's, there are all sorts of complexities. And one of the most complex situations of all is our homeless problem. Um, there, there are There's a cocktail of reasons that people end up on the streets in the first place. Um, there are people who are willing to exploit the situation built into that. And there are decisions that we as a society have to make about how we deal with that and how we deal with it um, as a government and as charities and organisations and also um, as individuals. And the thing you mentioned there about you not wanting to give to people um, is, is really interesting because there's lots of different kind of pools of thought on this. Um, and, and I must say that I'm, I'm kind of with you, actually, in the, it, two reasons, really. Number one, you're not quite sure where the money's going to go. Right. Um, and number two, it's also incredibly difficult. You walk down Beansgate in the centre of Manchester and you can see 10, 12... 15, if you walk down of an evening, you could easily see 25 to 30 people uh, sleeping in the street, sleeping that one street alone. Um, and how could you possibly give a couple of quid right. to each of them? Well, exactly you know, you right. Just, you and I mean, according to this story that's coming out of Nottingham today, which is in the uh, in, in the Daily Telegraph, Nottingham City councillors are hearing that the scale of illegal begging has really swelled, partly because of the warm weather. Uh, and the problem they're saying in Nottingham is mind-blowing. Rough sleeping has gone through the roof. Some of these guys are making £100 a night begging. You know, that's serious money, isn't it? Yeah, it is serious money. And I think look, I think, I think it's, it's worth drawing a line here, recognising the difference between homeless and begging because yeah. those two things those two things are very different the streets of my city as i say manchester are laced with people who, who are sleeping out who are trying to survive who are simply trying to survive um, and then those who are begging and look, i think that we have to we have an epidemic in this country of homelessness and i think that we we have to be cautious not to allow a story of um what i understand is a small number of people and potentially i mean it seems quite interesting i don't know a massive amount about this mike but it's quite interesting you use the you use the um uh, the term gangs there um organizing these kind of yeah. uh, exploitative begging sessions um i think that we need to separate those two things i don't think we can write off the fact write off the homelessness problem oh no i don't um, think we can but that's but that's that's really why i'm highlighting the begging problem because what some yeah. homeless charities are saying is that the professional beggars are actually doing more harm than good yeah, yeah, to yeah. the genuinely homeless because for example, if I thought somebody was genuinely homeless and, and I thought if I gave them a couple of quid that would be something they could do to get themselves a meal for the night or get themselves into a hostel for the night, I would happily do it. But I don't do it now because of these other people who I suspect are professional beggars. Mm, yeah, quite. And, you know, I spoke to a guy called, a guy called Mark. Who's, I think his second name escapes me, I'm afraid, but his name was Mark and he, he was homeless for several years. Um, for a good chunk of his life, a good 15, 20 years, I think he was on the streets, uh, addicted to heroin, um, managed to turn his life around, used the charity to help himself out. He's, he now produces documentary, radio documentaries, and, you know, he talks about homelessness um, and the effects of it. Uh, and, and I said, I said, Mark, what, what do we do? I said, I, I cannot walk past these people on Dean's Gate and turn a blind eye to them. I feel absolutely devastated about the situation that they are in. I feel a great sense of guilt that I can go back to my house and I can, I can um, enjoy... Uh, all the fruits that I that I can, and they can't, and, and often through no fault of their own. And he said, "Look, who am I to say what you do with your money? Who is the leader of Nottingham Council, or the, sorry, this official from Nottingham Council, to say what you do with your money? Who are you, Mike, to say what people do with their money? It's, it, it comes down to individual choice. You have to you have to base that your choice on the situation that you find yourself in, because nobody can account for what you can see in front of you. Right? You may see something in front of you." Um, that is um, that, that doesn't fit yeah. uh, or isn't quite right. And I think it's also worth making the point that exploitation happens in every walk of life. Anything that we do, you buy, a, you build a car, 
Most people will use it to drive around. Some are going to use it to drive into people. You build the internet. Most people will use it for the sharing of information. Some people are going to use it to facilitate crime. We can say a lot about humans. One thing that we can say for sure is wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever we build, people will be looking to exploit it, exploit That's the true. situation but for what, personal gain. But the difference, the difference here, Daryl, is that we can see with our own eyes that this is a problem which is getting bigger rather than smaller. And so while at the same time your analogies are good, talking about people accidentally driving in, uh, into, into other people, if there was suddenly an, uh, an outbreak of more people doing that, there would be a sort of emergency call, wouldn't there? People would say, well, this is, this is a car-driving emergency. This is a climate emergency. This is a homeless emergency, isn't it? Um, probably not, actually. Probably not. And I think the same thing with the internet. I mean, you know, the internet is a, probably a better analogy. Um, that's used for all sorts of crime, but, but calls to shut it down, uh, uh, you know, haven't, haven't, haven't sort of, you know, reached, reached the mainstream. Um, I don't think anybody would agree that's a good idea. Um, and I think that you, you, you're right in saying that because we have a rise in homelessness, that is probably facilitating the rise in those people who are wanting to exploit it, right? Because if, as a gang, you look at the situation as a gang leader or as, a, or as an opportunist, as an individual opportunist, you look at the situation and you think more people are homeless, more individuals feel compelled to help and to put their individual money into those places. You also look at the fact that charities and local councils are starved of the oxygen and the money and the resources that they need to help with the situation. And so that then, that then ultimately puts the burden of responsibility on individuals and drives individuals to want to try to give them more of their own cash as opposed to um, allowing the, the central government or the local authority to deal with it. And so as an individual who wants to exploit the situation, you think there is, there is money there right for the, right for the taking. Um, and I think it's worth us bearing in mind that the fact that we haven't dealt with this problem centrally, the fact that we are not giving enough resources, money of our time and our energy to dealing with the cocktail of problems that lead to people being homeless, that, that, that creates, uh, that sort of creates a, a, a vacuum for these people for, to, to exploit. But what would money do, for example, to stop people from becoming homeless? Because the reason people become homeless isn't always just to do with money. It can often be to do with drug abuse, it can be alcoholism, it can be uh, men mental health problems, it can be all manner of things, not necessarily that you can fix with money. No, absolutely. And I think that, that plays into one of the real problems with giving money, doesn't it? That, yes. that plays into you know, that when, it, when the burden of responsibility lands on the individual to give a couple of quid to that homeless person, um, there is no saying what they will do with it. And I know that's, kind of, that's a, bit, it's a bit trite, but, it's, mm. but, it is, but it is true. No, I mean, one of, the things I see, one of the things I see a lot of now around London is people leaving food. Because quite often, if I walk around uh, where we are here in a uh, very busy London Bridge area, right, there are people sleeping rough all over the place when you come in in the morning. And sometimes mm. there are asleep and people will occasionally leave like a sandwich down for them, a cup of coffee down for them. I'm sure that's a good thing to do. Um, but these are the genuine sort of homeless people who apparently are actually sleeping on the street. Our producer Con um, uh, has shown me a picture of Stratford out where he lives in East London. And there's a kind of tented city growing up underneath a kind of underpass, you know? Yeah, yeah, quite absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a couple of, a couple of months ago, about six months ago, um, I bought a, there's a, there's a guy, there's a guy called Sean who I kind of get chatting to. He's a homeless man. That lives on that street that I mentioned earlier, Deansgate, in the centre of Manchester. Yeah. Um, and I've kind of I've, I've spoken to him at length about all the problems that he faces. His wife died. He lost his job in quick succession. Got in with the wrong crowd. All this this cocktail that I talk about of issues that led to him being homeless. I bought him a pair of shoes, a new pair of shoes, because his shoes were torn to pieces. He had a cut on his foot that was going to kill him. I'm sure of it. Right. He didn't get it sorted. Bought him a pair of shoes and took the other pair of shoes off him to make sure that he didn't keep his old pair of shoes and sell on. Um, this new pair, and and I think you know, like I say, that, that that's that sort of individual responsibility that we take on. And you're right to say that 
giving people money isn't necessarily the solution. Um, and, 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 and as I said, that's relatively trite. But when it comes to money and it comes to resources, what needs to be done is, these, the, the, is our local authorities need to be supported properly. Our, the charities need to be supported properly. Um, the Booth Centre is a charity that works tirelessly in Manchester, has been starved of the funding that it needs. And I'm not talking about funding so that it can have a lovely office. I'm not talking about funding so that they can do away days and team building exercises. I'm talking about funding so that they can put people on the ground. They can hire the staff that they need. They've got two people, two people who work on the drug rehabilitation team. One of them went on maternity leave. They couldn't fill the gap. The other person went on sick because they'd, um, they'd, they'd had a problem with a stomach issue. Right. And they couldn't fill that gap. And this guy, Sean, directly, this individual, Sean, who I got to know, had an appointment that it had taken months and months for him to pluck up the courage and the wherewithal to go to. And because these two, because this person happened to be off, this drug, this drug officer happened to be off on that day, the, the meeting didn't happen. How long do you think it's going to take for him to get back in front of that person? Yes, probably, probably it meeting? may never happen. It could be another Possibly, year or yeah, two years quite, or something like that. Absolutely. But, and you know, we spend a lot of money. Office. But, Daryl, we spend a lot of money on, um, you know, supposedly caring for people in this country. And yet we still have many people falling through the gap. And if there's that many people falling through the gap and that number's getting bigger, then clearly we're not doing it right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Absolutely, yeah. I think, I think there are lots of things. Like I say, the complexity of this issue um, lends itself to this. Look, to the fact that, you no, know, you can't just throw money at it. Um, it would be a miss to suggest that these charities and these organisations, and particularly our local authorities on this one as well, um, aren't under-resourced. But they are. They are, they are vastly under-resourced. Mm. But we also need to be making sure that we are going about these things in the right way. We also need to be making sure that we, that, that, that these charities and these organisations and these organisations, these non-government organisations and the ones that are linked to, to, to local authorities are structured in the right way to properly help people as well as being, as well as being properly um, resourced. It's incredible, isn't it? I've got a, a tweet here from Francis who lives in Manchester. It says, people begging at traffic lights seems to become a thing in Manchester. Yeah. Uh, and it can be quite nervy if you're in a car with the window open. And that can be sometimes intim intimidating, right? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I've literally, literally two days ago, I was, um, I wound my window down and had a chat to the guy. And as, as I was pulling the window down, I thought, Christ, he could do anything uh, to me here. Um, well, you might know, get in the car if it's unlocked. Yeah, well, quite, absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, this, this comes down to you exercising your um, individual thought on this as well. Mark, the homeless guy, said to me, who is, he, who is he to say not to give somebody money? Who is he to say that you are to lock your doors as soon as you see somebody uh, begging at a traffic light? You need to assess the situation for yourself and come to, come to a conclusion um, for yourself. And, um, and, and similarly to you, Mike, you know, I don't give... If, if somebody was, was begging, I didn't give that guy any money. Uh, because I couldn't be certain the guy was clearly uh, intoxicated in one one way or another, and I couldn't be certain um, what he did. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe one way of doing it is every time you saw somebody that you were kind of you felt compelled to give some money to, um, you jump online and donate that three quid to shelter or to booth centre or to, to to a charity. Well, you could, but again, I mean, there's so much charitable money going around and being and swilling around. I mean, you can't put Facebook on without somebody asking you for money. You can't put you know you can't you can't put Twitter on without somebody asking you for money because there's all sorts of crowdfunding things going on, all sorts of charitable races being held. You know, I mean, we are at sort of limit up, I would say, as individuals in. In this society in which we live, for giving money away. Yeah, and, and actually, I would argue, Mike, that that is a symptom of a shirking of the responsibility of the state. Really, um, I think that we, I think that, that ultimately, when you when you see the cuts that we have seen, the first, I was so determined not to say the word austerity, but unfortunately, it's. Gonna, You've done it's it gonna, now. You've you know, done it now. 
it, do, it does unfortunately play into it. You know, when you, when, you, when you face the cliff edge of austerity that we have faced in this country, um, the burden of responsibility, as I say, lands on charities. Yeah, but you see, I don't are, see that. Now, I don't see it, Daryl. I don't see austerity in this country. I don't see people suffering. We had a story the other day saying that four million people in this country are living in poverty. Absolute nonsense. Rubbish, right? Apparently you're now in poverty uh, if after you've paid for your house, you've only got a couple of hundred quid a week. That's not poverty. Yeah, well, that's, I think I think it, I think that's clearly rubbish from where you're sat in that wonderful tower in the centre of London. Um, I'm, I'm currently sat in my car in Broughton, uh, in Salford. We make sure the doors are locked. The, the doors are locked. I've just been to the tip, and um, and I'm, I'm looking around me now, and it's not particularly pleasant. But Broughton in in Salford is one of um, the worst areas, one of the lowest socioeconomic areas in the country, and people here. What are do you mean? The BBC moving up to Salford hasn't changed all that. Oh you know, it certainly has. It certainly, it certainly has. Absolutely, there's no question about that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue against that. Um, I think, we, I think I, I've spoken to you about that before about the um, uh, about the, the incredible ripple effect. But equally, the the disparity between those people who are enjoying the fruits of the economic success of people of places like Media City and those people who are cut adrift and left behind because they don't work in the media, for example, um, which is the majority of people. Um, are, are struggling. They're, they're, they're fighting to feed themselves. They're fighting to feed their fridges. And let me give you an example of a. Well, no, there you go. That, you but... see what you've just said. They're fighting to feed their fridges. I mean, you know, they've all got fridges. It's not poverty if you've got a fridge, <laughs> is it? For heaven's sake. Well, it, well yeah. I think uh, a hand-me-down fridge, something that they found on the corner of the street, maybe. Look, I think let me let me let me give you an example of somebody who um, who, who I met a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. Um, there's a woman called Katie, right? And she was uh, she is a carer, so she is a carer for elderly people, predominantly um, those with dementia. And because of the organisation, the organisation that she works for, um, don't fund her, don't pay her to travel from care job to care job. They only pay her to do the care job. Right. right? So she's in that care job for maybe twenty minutes, half an hour, an hour if they need some more advanced care. She can then spend forty-five minutes to an hour travelling to the next job. She's unpaid for that. She's also they also don't provide that care. This it's a, it's a private organisation. It's worth pointing out. They, they also don't pay for the, those people to be cared for on bank holidays and at Christmas. This was late last year. I was I was speaking to her about this, and she had to go to work and and sort those people out and care for those individuals on Christmas Day because if she hadn't, they'd have been sat in their own feces on Christmas Day. Now, Katie is an example of somebody who isn't sitting around. She isn't sat, sat about watching Jeremy Kyle. She is a pillar of the community, and she isn't being paid enough to feed herself. She also has to do. Another job she relies on. She, her income is low enough to uh, rely on benefits. We, are, we have people in this country who, who are working, who are in this, this, this form of this, this, this thing that we talk about of working poverty. You know, people who are, who the, who, for whom the ladder has been knocked from beneath them. Um, and they and they're unable to. Um, and no, they're I, unable get that. Not I get that. But you know, we, we can't just hand people money because they can't make enough money in the private sector. Because that, in the end, perpetuates the people in the private sector paying people le less money than they should. But Daryl, listen, I've got to run. Thank you very much indeed for your thoughts, Daryl Morris, uh, columnist, talk radio presenter up in Manchester, uh, comes at this with a slightly different point of view than I do. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Yeah, I remember. This is the 
Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're listening to Talk Radio. It is the fastest growing radio station in the country. And there's good reason for that because we talk absolute and utter sense. We do not varnish it uh, with untruths. We do not try and give you some kind of fake agenda to follow. And you know, as well as I do, uh, that a lot of the common sense on this show comes from you, the callers, as much as it comes from me. Uh, 0344-499-1000. We're here with Piers Corbyn. Uh, I've got a couple of quick questions for you, Piers, before we yep. go to another phone call. Uh, one from uh, somebody who calls himself D. Uh, Mike, could you please ask Piers about the UN's agenda, uh, 21 to 2030? Because, of course, the UN famously, I think it was in 1989, predicted that uh, the world would have a devastating <laughs> sort of collapse. Yeah, by, it's every by, 10 years, they by say the, By the millennium, 2000, uh, if we didn't change our behaviours. And, of course, it didn't happen. No, they're always saying there's 10 years to go. Uh, of course, look, the first thing to know is that man-made climate change does not exist and carbon dioxide levels are an effect, not a cause, of world temperatures. And that is shown by data. Carbon dioxide levels follow temperatures hundreds of years later. And we can go into the details later if you want. Yes. But their uh, specific policies are to control people and working actually with with the big oil companies who, who support the man-made climate change agenda, if you read their websites, they say, we go along with it so long as there is a <clears throat> uniform price for carbon across the board. Well, that means, of course, that because you've got to pay farmers more <clears throat> to burn food, mm. like biofuels, rather than sell it to eat, then the price of energy goes up. And the effect of all the climate policies are to hold up price of energy, which means more profits for the oil companies. So they've basically doubled profits on 98% of world energy and given away 2%, because that's all it is worldwide, uh, on so-called sustainable things like bird and bat killing machines called wind farms and uh, uh, burning food like biofuels. Mm. Um, <clears throat> Interesting. Let but, me let me just uh, yeah. I'll stop you there for a second because uh, I've got another caller who wants to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. It's Robert uh, in Flanetley. Uh, Robert, very good morning to you. Welcome. Uh, hi, Mike. How are uh, you doing? Great programme. Thank you. Um, and uh, uh, hi, my, uh, Piers. Hello. Um, I've, obviously, I've got a lot of respect for you, Piers. Um, I follow you on Twitter and uh, I do look at uh, on YouTube. Fantastic. Uh, all interesting... I hope you buy our forecast as well. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to do that as well. <laughs> just a thought, weatheraction.com. There, yes, that's the longest. Right, that's right. The, the, actually, we are. Dare I say, the best long-range forecasters around. Yeah, are you for proper long range? Well, the Met know, Office, the Met Office stopped doing long-range forecasting. Didn't they, they have, yes. Yeah. So after they had those, they had their three barbecue summers on two thousand and seven, two thousand eight, and two thousand and nine, and we said it was going to be floods, floods, floods. Yeah. which you may recall it was. Yes, indeed. Robert, what's your question? Yeah, well, what I'd like to ask, uh, Piers, Mike, is um, uh, how much uh, of a year does his own brother give to Piers? Because, you know, it seems that, uh, you know, Jeremy is going down the line of uh, being duped by the climate change activists and uh, like Extinction Rebellion. And, of course, you've got Greta Thunberg as well, which is getting into the mix. I mean, is Jeremy uh, Corbyn just being willfully dismissive uh, of, of the facts of climate change or is there a sort of a political angle here? And, and I'd just also like to ask Piers, is, uh, why, is this being, why are the figures and the data being abused as they are by, by respectful organisations like NASA, for instance? 
Right. Well, to last the second one first, they abuse the data in order to justify the climate change agenda and to try and prove that the world is warming, when actually now satellite data shows that the world is cooling. And our own analysis shows we're heading for a little ice age. So that's the reason for abusing data. Now, why should NASA do it? Well, of course, they're an extension of the American government. Now, Trump, of course, doesn't go along with this climate stuff. So I think we are noticing there are changes in the tone and mood of NASA and NOAA. And they have said a number of things which have been a lot more near the truth recently, which is very important. Now, so far as politicians across the board in Parliament, they all go along with this climate change agenda. Now, Jeremy, of course, my brother, has to support Labour policy. But I would say, despite that, a very good thing about him if he was elected is that he's in favour of discussion on all sorts of things, whereas other people will shut down discussion. Now, that means there would be room for a proper discussion on energy policy if he's Prime Minister. And already the Climate Change Act anyway says that as the science changes, the measures will change. Now, uh, if there's a discussion, we'd point out that the jet stream which is the upper air which goes fast around the globe and the north of it in the northern hemisphere is colder and south of it is it's, it's lower. That The jet stream has moved south and got more wavy, which is against the uh, official view under the climate change CO2 driver policy. So the science has changed, so is there room for discussion? And our answer is that actually... Um, we shouldn't have any attack on CO2. CO2 is the gas of life and we should, instead of uh, prepare for warming, we should be preparing for a little ice age which will cut down, uh, you know, a lot of agriculture in the... In the temperate regions. Interesting stuff. Robert, thanks very much indeed Thank for your you, call. Yes. Um, we're going to get more from Piers Corbyn coming up. I'm going to ask you about the science because you've yep. kind of single-handedly, not completely alone, but are very unusually um, uh, different from everybody else who tells us, well, the science is very clear. And then <laughs> when you say, well, that's not necessarily the case, uh, they get very upset. How about this for a, a tweet oh, from Trevor who says, Mike and Piers, I live in a house with three teenagers telling me how wrong I am on climate change. I feel I'm being bullied by my own children. Yes, as if I was are. living in Maoist times. Wow. Yeah, yet they have new clothes and gadget deliveries every day. How can I get it through to them that they're hypocrites? Well, I'll tell you what, Trevor, if I were you, I'd stop with the clothes and the gadgets for a start and then see where you go from there. Uh, but we'll take more of your calls coming up, 0344 499 1000. Uh, we're going to address the Prince Harry problem coming up next with Piers Corbyn. Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Can't stop addicted to the shindig. Chop chop, it says I'm gonna win big. Choose not to like of imitation. This can cuts into the reservation. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham and we are listening to Talk Radio. It's the fastest growing radio station in the country. Uh, we've got Piers uh, Corbyn with us because uh, he's telling us about the science and the means by which climate change is being manipulated by the powers that be uh, for all sorts of different reasons. But I asked you just before the news, yep. Piers, about the science because the science kind of is always what the people who tell us the climate is changing fast fall back on and say, well, all the science is on one side, but you're saying it isn't. No, certainly not. Uh, if you look at the data, 
The data shows that when you analyse temperatures and carbon dioxide, that carbon dioxide levels follow temperatures. So after the last ice age, for example, Antarctic temperatures, and you measure these by ice cores, went up, and then about 800 years later, the amount of carbon dioxide in the world uh, uh, went up. And the reason for the warming now... Uh, not the warming, the reason for the extra CO2 now is a delayed effect from the medieval warm period. In the medieval warm period, extra CO2, which was emitted from the upper levels of the oceans, uh, got subsumed by extra cold water from melt in Greenland going under the sea. So that cold water, which absorbs more CO2 than warm water, gobbled up extra CO2, that then circulates under the Atlantic, under the Pacific, and comes out again about 600 to 800 years later, and emits its CO2. So that's why we have larger CO2 now. Man will have no effect on this CO2. And if, ma if, if man was really worried about CO2, if the powers of be were honestly worried, they should address the fact that termites produce 10 times more CO2 than man. Man is only 4% of the total amount of CO2 produced, and the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is only 0.04%. So man is 4% of 0.04% of the atmosphere. And presumably... Um, the and it, which the, is a, a trivial amount, but the point is that if, man, uh, if man's CO2 is important, then the rest of nature has to obey man. So the termites have to obey man and produce more CO2 when the termites do. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a conspiracy of nature. Uh, That's what they're telling you to believe in. It's a completely insane conspiracy of yeah, nature. And presumably There's no the, evidence for it whatsoever. And presumably, There's only evidence against And presumably the, minis <clears throat> the minuscule makeup of this country in terms of the man-made oh CO2 in that 4% oh. is, is even less, right? It's... Dare I say, like pissing in the wind? I hope I don't get arrested for that. No, you don't get arrested for okay. that. Okay, but let's um, talk to let's let's, let's, let's get insane. a let's get a call up because Laura uh, is calling in from London, wants to ask you a question. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Thank you for this interesting uh, interview. So so brilliant. Um, Piers, I've yes. got a couple of questions. One is um, what you say, what you think of chemtrails, because I've looked at it online and seen the court hearings about the thing so it does actually exist as far as I know. The other thing is I believe in what the ancient Zoroastrians believe in which is not to pollute the air, water or soil because you have to breathe the air, you have to drink the water yeah, and you have to yeah, eat whatever's yeah. grown in the soil so it would be foolish to pollute. In that case if the agencies and powers that be are going on about zero what is it, energy and all the rest of it um, how come they are increasing the manufacture sales and dropping of bombs? Well, of course. Which is, a, which is a polluter of air, water and soil and a killer of mankind. Yeah, totally, totally right. Well, in terms of weather control and, um, you know, that sort of stuff, chemtrails, those are real and dangerous and bad. And I think they're experimental at the moment for military purposes. They're not very effective yet, but there should be a proper parliamentary inquiry into them. Uh, there was one, there was a parliamentary committee, but it seemed to have had its purposes curtailed and not, not done... But when uh, you say they much. are real, I mean, people point up to the sky and ah, see, well, okay. and see yeah, trails well, from right. aeroplanes and of call course. them chemtrails. No, no, no. Sorry, That's not what careful. we're talking about, right? No. Because we don't want to get into the land of the tinfoil hat. The, 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 no, no. There are things which are being done experimentally yeah. and there are conferences on 
geoengineering and things are dropped into the sky on occasions. And, um, for example, the, the floods in 1953 at Lynmouth were caused by attempts to make it rain, which worked. Namely, you can drop solid carbon dioxide granules or silver iodide into clouds and it mm. makes them rain. Now, that is a, quite a simple thing. The chemtrails may be other things and uh, exactly what is going on, I don't know. But it, it's not... I don't, it, there's a lot of real real trails go on from aeroplanes which are not chemtrails and one has to be careful yeah. to avoid confusion. Sure. Laura, did you have another question? <clears throat> yeah, the thing about the, 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 the... I know that the powers that be don't believe in what they, they've got another agenda because if, they're, if, if they were being authentic, they would have said, oh, we're very concerned about polluting and so on and so forth. We're going to stop manufacturing, selling and dropping bombs all over right. the place. That's the same as the last question, though, Laura. Listen, thanks yeah. very much for calling. And we've had an answer to that. Let's go to James, who's in Bath. James, very good morning to you. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, what do you want to say, James? Yeah, I just want to say a uh, very interesting debate um, and uh, about the recent floods and, and climate change. It's always very convenient that they blame it on climate change, but if you actually look at all the floods in the last 10, 15 years, the one thing they've all got in common is house building. You know, I've got nothing against yeah. house building, but if it's in the wrong areas, they're <clears throat> linking up, you know, towns and villages and so on and so forth. And when concrete goes down, there's nowhere for the rain to go. So, of course, the existing waterways, the ditches, the rivers, you know, they, they cannot cope with the additional runoff. It's, it's quite a straightforward process. It's not rocket science, but no one ever mentions on the TV or the radio, oh, it's house building. Oh, it's climate change. Let's blame it on climate change. It's very convenient to blame it on climate change. But, yeah, hey, look, the weather might be changing. But the fact is that they're building houses everywhere, which I'm not against, by the way, but they're not going in the right areas. And unfortunately, it's overloading the system. You know, system can't cope. It's like everything, isn't it? You know, the, you know, more people come in, the hospitals overflow, the roads are overflowing, and more houses are being built, which, like I say, I'm not against, but it's, it, it overflows the, the existing water channels and it can't cope. It's, you know, and, and it's just unfortunate that it's always blamed on climate change. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, of course, a lot of the, some of the houses being built are kept empty to make profits in, in London through speculation, and I'm against building of those, but, of course, we do have to build houses for people or use empty ones. Um, I think what you say about the bad planning of housing is excellent. Um, it's also worth pointing out, though, that as we move more into the Little Ice Age and generally colder weather you will get more extreme deluges and more hailstorms. And we predicted this uh, five years ago at a big conference in Geneva, and it is now coming true. Because as, some as, of these uh, deluges are, are, you know, are more severe than they have been, say, 20 years ago. They certainly are. I mean, funnily enough, as we speak, there's an amber weather warning <coughs> going out about uh, rainfall, very heavy rainfall today. And I can tell you, I mean, just from my own personal experience of flooding, people generally think that flooding is, is caused by wet, warmer weather rather than colder weather, but you're saying it's, it's the reverse. Yeah, no, in the, in the Little Ice Age, there were massive floods in the um, during the Napoleonic Wars mm. and during the... The 1600s, 1700s, right. absolutely. Actually, one of the questions that comes up, one of the questions in, in that Europe. comes up a lot, uh, which people ask me, which of course, not being scientists, I can't answer. That people always say to me, "How is it that the last ice age ended? 
because nobody was driving around in Land Rovers back then. <laughs> and, you know, obviously, you know, Prince Harry wasn't around to save the planet oh. or to change the temperature. So, um, you know, or barefoot Harry, as we now call him, um, how is it possible that the ice melted without any kind of sure. global no. warming the, scenario? Look, the, the natural state of the world in the last million years has been ice ages, i.e. most of the, you know, northern hemisphere, or a large part, uh, most of Russia and Scotland, yeah. uh, etc., covered in ice. And these, every uh, 100 to 130,000 years, these ice caps melt and we get into what we call now an interglacial period, which is warmer. Now, <clears throat> this happens, nothing to do with CO2, it happens because of the change in tilt of the Earth and the change in direction of the Earth's magnetic poles um, because they, that changes the interaction with the Sun, which is magnetically connected to the Earth. And... Um, as we are now, during the interglacials, we get more particles coming from the sun, which do various things but affect the jet stream, for example, and the general effect is to make the world a warmer place. And right now, this interglacial is almost ended, i.e. it's lasted about 10,000 years, and the last 500 or 700 years have been colder than all the previous part of the last 10,000 years. So we're getting colder anyway, and the blips up and down now are part of shorter cycles. And we are now in, according to satellite measurements, a declining phase. And the next uh, solar active period is going to be very inactive. And uh, that's why we're entering a little ice age. OK. Well, I just b b buy a few more sweaters for the winter then. <coughs> well, you suggestion? might need more than that. And, uh, <laughs> you... <laughs> It means we'll Don't worry, have, I've uh, got a very big coat, which some people have seen. Grain production will start failing. Already parts of North America aren't able to produce the grain they could. On the maize, maize growing in south, southern parts of the USA is shrinking because of too many floods and hailstorms and so forth. Right. It's been a fascinating um, 40 minutes or so, Piers. Thank you so much for coming in. Uh, the people have, uh, have spoken. The people have asked some good questions. We can never get enough questions on, I'm afraid. We but... need action for life rather than okay. extinction rebellion, I was going to say. Action for life. Can I give you some good points? Please four, do. Four closing points. Yeah. First of all, uh, just about Prince Harry, I would say that the idea that he's worried about his children suffering from anything in the future is, is ridiculous. <laughs> um, and I think instead of this nonsense, we want action for life right. and we want to think against all these false narratives coming to us. We have to oppose the self-hating policies which are mentally disturbing children and we should totally oppose the World Economic Forum policy for theft of your rights and property and income and living standards. Very well said, Piers. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you to everybody who called in. Uh, you can still call in and talk to me. I'm not as any way as much of an expert as Piers Corbett is, obviously. Uh, but I will, of course, attempt to answer some of your questions if you have any more. 0344 499 1000 is the number. You can tweet us at Talk Radio. Uh, and, of course, we'll take more of your calls coming up. A mid-morning dance with the devil. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Time. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is, of course, Talk Radio, and we are growing very, very fast now because loads more people are coming to listen to us and enjoying it because we are the voice of reason. We are the voice uh, of the people. In fact, we call it Voice of the People Radio sometimes. And to celebrate some of that, uh, we have got with us the godfather of bubbles, Chris Walkie, founder of Glass of Bubbly, uh, and, of course, his son Oliver, who is now celebrating his 18th birthday. And you brought with you what can only be described as uh, some rather nice-looking bottles of fizz. Yes, we've got some Slovenian. Here we go. I'm not, I'm not had anything to drink yet. <laughs> Slovenian sparkling wine. Yes, we've got a few varieties here to test today. Right now, Slovenia is part of the former Yugoslavia. You know, it's in that sort yep. of northwest corner, isn't it? Of Yugos- yeah, it's of, got of, a few sort of next to Italy. Lovely countries bordering Italy, Aust- Austria, yeah. Hungary, and uh, Croatia as well. Okay. And I've, I've been there. It's a splendid, splendid. Country. Do you know I was in Slovenia? What is now Slovenia? In a place yep. called Bled. Um, no, which has got there. a beautiful lake in it and it's got this lovely island in the middle of the lake with a little church on it. Sounds it's really picturesque. lovely. And I was there when it was still part of Yugoslavia. Yeah. Um, but I've never thought of it as a wine growing region, but I guess it's 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 got a decent well, uh, um, climate, it, hasn't it? It has, that? and it, it produces some fantastic sparkling wines. Most of the wines are sold internally. Right. They've only got, say, around about 8 million bottles that are sold uh, in ex- exporting, but it's usually the USA that embraces oh, that the right? Slovenian sparkling wines. But they want to push more in the UK. Okay. So hence we've got some here today Brilliant. to try. Well, because you and I have tried many uh, British sparkling wines. We've had we uh, have, quite yeah. a lot of English stuff before. Is there anything that particularly marks out what it tastes like in terms of what's it similar to that people might have drunk before. With regards to uh, the Slovenian sparkling wines, uh, I think they can be very close to uh, the likes of, say, Frenchy Court or even Champagne, where they've got the toasty kind of uh, characteristics, the yellow fruits, the soft yellow fruits. uh, So it's more kind of Champagne than Prosecco-y then? Yes, and it's made in the same method as as Champagne with regards to the Prosecco, which is an easier-to-make method with the Glera grape. Uh, But there's some splendid flavour. So we're going to try one here on the about to pop We're about the to hear cork a, here. A, the, the cork popping. Well, that all sounds good. That sounds good. It's always a very good sound, isn't it? Now, um, what you've got four bottles here. I've so. got four different um, uh, wines for you to taste yeah. today. And we, the first one we've got here is a kind of a low sugar um, option. Right. And this is a 2010. Uh, the, the winery is called Silvery. Okay. Um, it looks very champagne like, doesn't it? It's quite light coloured. Um, I'm seeing you giving it the nose. So yes, definitely. It smells looks like champagne, actually, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's probably going to have less sugar, so it's going to be drier taste. Mmm. Oh, I like that. That's really good. That's not too bad. That's it's very, it's very, very smooth, though, isn't it? So, it's, nine yep. years old. Nine years old, and it had a medal for Seabreeze in 2017 from the Glass of Bubbly Awards. So okay. people have seen it as a kind of a salty sea air, kind of a refreshing, crisp. Um, and are these all very small, kind of independent producers, or are they... some of them are small? The biggest one here, which we're going to taste, has around about, I believe, six million bottles that they produce, and they're quite big, 420 hectares mm. that they have, um, which we'll try in a second. So, as I say, this is a brute nature from okay. from Silvery. Do you want to go on to another? Should we try? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's, do you want to try open a, another bottle? Let's do the this one here, Oliver. So you've got a book out now, apparently. So you're, in addition to all the other things you do, you're also an author. Yes, literally, I'm very passionate about pairing champagne, sparkling wines with food. Mm. And then I brought out a book along with a lady in Italy that's very passionate equally. And together we've got the finest champagne, sparkling wines and their recommended food okay. pairings. Because it's not always easy to think of things that you can eat while drinking champagne because I always see it as a kind of almost a, a sort of aperitif type pre-dinner or pre-lunch type drink, you know? I think it's, it's, it's progressed from there. Years ago, it's probably white wine for fish, red wine for a steak. But mm. I think the, the, the 
complexity of, 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 of champagne sparkling wines means that we can pair it with different types of dishes. That could be a Thai curry, it could be fish and chips, uh-huh. it could be a sweet dessert. We have red sparkling, we have rosés, we have brutes. Now, that and, I'd like to try some red sparkling. I could do that another time. I could okay. come in with a nice selection of reds, okay. definitely. That would yeah, be yeah. good. So this is my second one so here. This one Similar here. colour to the first. Yeah, this is, uh, which one have we got here? Let me just see. There's so many bottles here, which is a good problem to have. It so certainly is. This one here we've got is the Regonk Scoris. So this is the largest kind of mm. um, producer of sparkling wine. This tastes a little bit more substantive. Well, this again is another brute zero. Another brute zero. So low on sugar. Ooh. I'm liking the low on sugar thing as well because presumably that means it's less calories, is it? Generally, be less calories, right. Mike. Yeah, yeah. And there's still some in there, so. We're never going to have zero. I'm always in favour of anything alcoholic I can drink that has fewer calories, to be honest. Yes, and that's a, that's a good option. I think usually something like it equates to a banana or less than the banana, the calories in the glass of fizz. Okay. Depends how big that glass is, obviously. Right. So, again, this is a zero sugar. And this is, as I say, yeah, the Regonk Scoris. We're going to, should we try, should we go on to another Let's one? keep going. What sort Let's of price going. are we talking for these at the moment? Right, so here, a lot of these wines aren't as of yet available in the UK so they're looking for representation okay. but a bottle like this would be around about 15 16 pounds okay. when it comes in let's try so closer the... to the prosecco yeah. price than than possibly because a lot of the english sparkling wines now are getting quite expensive isn't it the english sparkling wines yeah again they're made in the same way as champagne so mm. there's a lot of cost that go in there and they have to be set aside for a number of years uh, but they they're very good some english sparkling wines are very very good and they merit being shoulder to shoulder with yes, champagne in price. They do. But I guess it's that kind of, um, I suppose, psychological effect that you have to get over that, you know, you're buying something which is not champagne, so you expect it to be cheaper. It's got that Even word, though it's just it? as good. Yeah, no, I agree. If your champagne does, it always means something to somebody. If you're holding a bottle of champagne, it just sounds good. Even if it's a cheap one, yeah. it sounds good. I must admit, because we tend to drink, um, you know, champagne quite rarely, say, at home, but we'll quite often have a bottle of Prosecco. But I must admit, whenever you have the champagne, you just always feel that it's slightly better it's, it's just it's just that word isn't it it's mm, something aspirational yeah. kind of word that sexy word how we want to explain it mm. but yeah sh- champagne's got something about it hasn't it so we're going on to have you you need um, to probably i'll need to finish one of these won't do you I? want to pass that over to mike oh he's going to finish it oh here we go there you go and then we've got another one here so we're going I'm to just go... knock them back now we've only got a few more minutes <laughs> <laughs> although i'm supposed to make a video after this by the way are you are oh, mm. right. standing still standing straight uh well just sort of moving hoping, around hopefully you're hoping 2013 so now we've got a a vintage okay and this is from biana so this is another um smaller kind of winery uh-huh. over in slovenia uh this would be around about 25 pounds again it's slightly low on the sugar but mm. the nose you kind of got almonds and croissants yes I think so far, my, the second one I think is my favourite. Which I've got set aside here. Yeah. Is that the vintage one? No, this is not a vintage one though. The one that we're tasting now is the vintage. We've mm. got two vintages and we've got one coming up. Oliver probably wants to prepare that one for us because okay. we're going through them rather fast. We are. Well, we haven't got a great deal of time. We're going to be out of here in about five minutes. So. No, that's fine. That's fine. So as I say, yeah, so we've got... It, Slovenia has around about 28,000 wineries. Right. A lot of those wineries are small family uh, producers and they will produce around about 120 million bottles. And I think the population is about 2.25 million. So it's, it's quite, quite a, a small, small country. It is quite a small country, yeah. yeah. But, you know, fantastically placed. It does have a tiny little bit that is touching on, on the sea, so it's not landlocked totally. Right. Uh, but I've been to some lovely wineries, genuine people, and are very passionate about it's what they do. It's a place where a lot of people go on holiday now as well, isn't it? It's become yes. quite a big destination for And for the Brits. real estate prices have really shot have up they? as well. They have done, yes, they have done. It's been discovered. we try this mm. one, Oliver. 
that's um, I, I'm, I'm not. Funny enough, the vintage one's not going down quite as well as the first two. To be no, for some reason, I don't that's know why. fine. That's the beauty of wine. There's no mm. right or wrong. It's what you prefer. Always. It might be just because it's a slightly heavier taste, isn't it, than the first two, perhaps? Possibly, yes. It's probably a bit, a bit more complex, and the others are crisp and refreshing, and it depends on your style that you like. So we've got another one coming up here. Again, one may need to get rid of that glass. Mm. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'll tell you what, I'll get rid here of this we go. <laughs> So we're going to try the... Um, what we, which one have we got here? This is the last one. This is the Millisem, I think, 2010. Let me have a look at this okay. one here. Yeah, this is the another Brut Zero, so we've got less sugar. They're a very pretty bottle, I should say. Yeah, we'll put definitely. out some pictures of all of these later on. But as you've said, you can't really get these at the moment here, can you? Not at present. They're, they're really seeking representation in the UK. And when they're here, I think they'll be a good hit. Right. Uh, definitely. Um, but I mean, now, if they contact you, is there any way that you can put them in touch with We do, they, yeah. Uh, you know, the vineyards in question who might be able to send a case or something they like that? They would certainly be able to do that. I'll, if anybody contacted me and said, look, I really want to explore the Slovenian right. sparkling wines, then I'll for sure give you direct contact mm. and you can uh, speak to them. They'd be delighted to, you know, show, showcase what they're doing okay. in this the country. This one I like. This, this is one? This is the final. This is 2010? This is the 2010. Yes, it is. Yeah, the 2010. Mm. So, um, and this is, That's I believe... That's sort of the richest of the four, I think, is, isn't it? 100% Chardonnay. Oh, is one, it? Yeah. Okay. And it's that, a... Feels more rounded than the others. The it's, first two were quite light, I thought. It has more sugar, this one. So we've got around about 10 grams of sugar in this one. Okay. So we've got a buttery, honey, kind mm. of toasty Very nice. smell and yeah, like uh, flavour. Yeah, I would say that's the kind of um, mm. gold standard one for me. This, yeah, they, it's entered our awards this year, Has so it? we're hoping that will be the case. All right, okay. So it's lovely flavour, actually. It's that, good to that's know my that favourite. It's good to know that I have not lost my touch on this, right? No, you know, yeah. <laughs> we tried to fool you, but here, you've got it all right. Mm. So... Here we go. So this Brilliant. is some Slovenian sparkling wines. I've got a couple of extra bottles which we'll leave for you to enjoy you. here in the That's offices. Very kind. And thank you again well, for we the will, opportunity. Well, uh, we will tweet out the uh, the bottles and the pictures so that if you need to, and also some contact details for you, Chris. Wonderful, and yeah. thank you very much for coming in. And Oliver, happy birthday. I know she's not drinking yet, even though he's No, he's trying 18. to be good, but you wait once he's out that door. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> all right, we'll keep an eye on all of that. Well, it's been another fabulous show. Thank you very much to everybody who called in, everybody who tweeted, uh, everybody who, of course, also got in touch by text. We'll be back tomorrow with the Perrier Awards, because it's Friday. And, of course, uh, lots, lots more of your calls, lots more uh, of your uh, thoughts and lots more uh, of your views as well. This is The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Across the UK, online and on DAB, The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.